do thank you for for your for all the kindnesses that you give to us that we enjoy every day. We thank you for them. We thank you for eternal life, Lord. We thank you for the truth of the fact that we, when we do lose our loved ones in the Lord, as, as Grace and, and Mila have done, had experienced lately, that we know it's just temporary, that we will see them again one day. And we cannot thank you enough for that truth. And we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your long suffering. We thank you for that gracious love that you have displayed to us in giving us your son. And as we read of, of the mocking that he went through and, and the abuse and his death, again, we do thank you for, for, for sending him to bear all of this in our place, in our stead, and to bear away our sin so that we might be able to, to spend eternity with you and, and to meet with you today as we do in his name. And have the complete confidence that we are received by you and have access to you by that grace. Nothing in our hands we bring, simply to the cross we cling. We ask that our hearts would be moved today so that we are truly glad down to the very depths of our souls to call Jesus our Lord, our King, our Savior. And we ask, too, that our hearts would, would be warmed to the truths of Jesus by, by the use of the ministry of your word, by your spirit this morning. Draw us and, and soften us and restore feeling to our hearts so that again today we may have the joy of hearing your story as ever new and fresh to our souls. We ask that you would prevent anything from hindering your spirit from having your way and your will in this next hour. Turn our thoughts away from ourselves so that no fear and no burden of, of life stands between us and the blessing you have for us this morning. For we do pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, with the scourging of Jesus and the scorning that followed it, now finished, Pilate who likely witnessed all of that, the entire thing, he goes back outside of the judgment hall, back outside of the praetorium for the third time to speak to the chief priests and the elders of Israel and the ever-growing mob of people who are getting up, you know, it's early morning, they're getting up and they're gathering with their leaders to see what is going on. So with this lesson, which is a continuation of Lesson 172 in your books on Satan's Hour of Darkness, we come to the second phase of the Lord's last trial. And this is his sixth trial altogether, isn't it? His third Roman trial, the last Roman trial, and this is the last phase of the last trial. Most of the information that we have for this last phase of the last trial is given to us in John's Gospel. So would you open up to John 19? We're going to stay parked there all morning long, even though there are just a couple verses that we find in Matthew and Mark and Luke, but we'll mention them a little later on this morning. You won't really need to turn to them. I'll tell you what they say. But for now, we're going to be looking at verses 4 to 11 in John 19. I'm going to read all of them to begin with, and then we're going to discuss each verse one by one. So let's look at John 19, starting in verse 4. This is right after they had scourged and scorned Jesus Christ. Pilate therefore went forth again, if you want to write third time, out of the praetorium, and saith unto them, the them is the big crowd out there, Behold, 
I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus, then came Jesus forth wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. They didn't take those off after they scorned and mocked him. They left those on. And Pilate saith unto them these very famous words, Behold the man. When the chief priests therefore and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate saith unto them, Take ye him and crucify him. Yourselves, basically, is what he's saying. You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. Twice in this passage, he says, he's innocent. Verse 7, the Jews answered him, answered Pilate, We have a law, and by our law he ought to die. Why? Because he made himself the son of God. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And went again into the judgment hall, and saith unto Jesus, Whence art thou? In other words, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. Then Pilate saith unto him, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee, and have power to release thee? Jesus answered, Thou couldest have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. Therefore, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Now, if you'll look back at verse 4, we find that Pilate went out of the praetorium to alert the crowd to the fact that he was about to bring forth to them Jesus. Behold, I bring him forth to you. He came out first. Jesus was not with him. So he's announcing, we could say he's announcing the coming of Jesus here. He's announcing the arrival of Jesus. And I don't, I'm not sure why he did this. I'm not sure why he didn't bring Jesus with him at this point in time. But it was probably in order to add more drama to the situation so that the people would not be focused on him and Jesus. When Jesus came forth, they would just be focused on Jesus and the horrible phys- physical condition of Jesus. Also, he wanted to announce, first of all, his verdict of not guilty for the third time before he brought Jesus forth. He said, Behold, I bring him forth to you that ye may know that I find no fault in him. Isn't it very divinely fitting, I think it is, that the judge who had the most to do with sentencing Jesus to death, and that judge was Pilate, is the same person we hear more times about the innocence of Jesus than anyone else. He's the judge most responsible for sentencing Jesus to death. And yet yet more than anybody, he said, I think seven times, if you go through all four Gospels, at least seven times, I find no fault in him. He's innocent. He's guiltless. That's very interesting, isn't it? Now, of course, Pilate simply should have administered justice at this point. He should have done it to begin with when he said, first interrogation, he's innocent. But here now, still, again, he should have just set Jesus free, especially after punishing him so severely for absolutely nothing. He says he's innocent, but he had scourged him anyway. So his words really condemn himself, don't they? He has just scourged him with with what the Romans called the halfway death. Remember we talked last time about scourging? They called that the halfway death. Many People didn't even make it through the scourging. Even a robust man could die during a Roman scourging. 
Um, so he's really condemning himself because why, if he found no fault in Jesus, why did he scourge him? And why did he allow his soldiers to mock him so badly with that crown of thorns and the, you know, hail king of the Jews in the purple robe? Why does he now proceed to bring him before his accusers instead of releasing him? It's pretty incredible to think how evil people can justify their sin. It really is. But that's what exactly what they do. They justify their sin, and this is what uh, Caesar is doing, the Roman governor here. He is justifying to himself the merciless scourging and the mindless scorning of a man he declared completely innocent. In his mind, his plan justified the injustice of the situation. In other words, the means was going to justify the, the end. He hoped that when the Jews saw Jesus, they would be satisfied that he had suffered enough. You know, enough punishment. Look at him. He doesn't even look like a man anymore. And that he had suffered uh, enough and, and that they would agree to let him go. I do hear a ringing, don't you? Um, and so Pilate must have figured that with the presentation of the scourged, bloody Jesus in his mocking crown and his purple robe, the envy of the Jewish leaders would dissipate. He knew. We've learned this. We learned that Pilate knew that the Jews, the religious leaders, were jealous of Jesus. They envied him. So he figured their envy is going to go away. They're not going to need to worry anymore um, about his popularity with the people. Because who, who could ever look upon Jesus again with any respect after this? This can't possibly be our Messiah, a man who would allow himself submissively, you know, not even trying to put up a fight with his followers, that would allow himself to get to this point where he doesn't even look like a man anymore, scourged and bloody and submissive and silent. Who could ever have any respect for such a person? His reputation would never be retrieved. Surely what Rome did to Jesus would serve as a perpetual reproach upon his person. That's what Pilate was hoping. But once again, Pilate would find that you cannot compromise with evil and come out ahead. Have you learned that? It's never a positive thing to compromise with evil. You see, what happened with Pilate's efforts to compromise is this. In attempting to please the Jews by scourging Jesus and therefore save his own conscience by not crucifying him, he wound up doing neither. I mean, he, he didn't appease the Jews. He didn't appease the people with the scourging. They, they just wanted more blood once they saw some blood. And he didn't sal salve his own conscience either because he wound up doing what? Exactly what he didn't want to do. He wound up crucifying Jesus. And all the forces of, why was all this? Because all the forces of Satan were behind this whole event. And God was intentionally holding back his hand. He allowed Satan to vent all his anger and hatred against his son. So the crowd was not appeased. And, um, and, and, and he wound up crucifying Jesus anyway. Nothing that Pilate had hoped would happen, happened. That's what happens when you compromise with evil. And then verse 5 tells us that after Pilate alerted the crowd of Jesus' coming, what happened? Then, then came forth Jesus wearing that crown of thorns and a purple robe. The Lord of glory, 
the creator God of the universe, came forth willingly out of the judgment hall onto that platform or balcony or whatever it was. He didn't have, we know the power of Jesus. He didn't have to come forth, did he, in that terrible condition? But he willingly came forth to be made a spectacle, willingly to be booed and ridiculed and to have heads turned away in disgust at the gruesomeness of his appearance. Silent and submissive, he came forth in that awful, awful condition. Why? Well, because at this point, he was the sacrificial lamb, wasn't he? About to lay down his life for the sins of the world. He uttered not one word. But do you realize how different it's going to be at the second coming? Ooh, ooh. Not going to be the silent, submissive, sacrificial lamb anymore, but the roaring lion from the tribe of Judah. And when he comes forth, every other mouth will be stopped. And one word from his mouth, the word of the, the Lord, the sword of the Spirit, and every mouth will be silenced, won't it? Completely different at his second coming. And I can't wait for that day. <laughs> But it was at this time that, that Pilate gave his famous introduction. What did he say as Jesus came forth? Behold the man. He was hoping that the absurdity of this situation was going to shame the crowd. How could such a humiliated, battered, beaten, bloody, bruised, repugnant to look at man, how could he be dangerous to anyone? Just look at him. A man in this kind of condition is not worthy of envy. How could you envy that? How could you, how could you be suspicious of, of him being dangerous, a threat to Caesar? You're kidding. you got to be kidding. A man like this certainly could not be feared. All the world would make a jest out of this, a joke out of such a supposed king. Similar to Caiaphas. Remember Caiaphas is the co, one of the co-reigning high priests of Israel at that time who unwittingly spoke the truth of God when he said back in John 11.50, it is expedient for us that one man should die for the nation that the people perish not or that the whole, die for the people that the whole nation perish not. Just like Caiaphas who spoke for God, you know, God can use even a donkey, right? Pilate here was speaking for God, you know, he was saying much more than he ever could have guessed in his words, behold, the man. For one thing, he said the man, didn't he? He didn't say behold this man, he said the man, which is important because the word the is very exclusive. When Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, it was exclusive, right? It means I am the one and only. He, this makes Jesus exclusive. Behold, the man. The word the exalts the Lord Jesus as the man of all men. The man of all men. Not only is he Lord of lords and king of kings, but he's man of all men. He is the ideal man. He is the zenith of humanity, the perfect man. He has no peer. He's the unattainable ideal. And I think of two verses that confirm this truth to us. Remember when the temple guard went out to arrest him? And they came back empty-handed. What did they say? Never man spake like this man. And another verse is, he hath done all things well. Could that ever be said of any other person who has ever lived? That they have done all things well? They've always pleased the Father. 
Only of him can behold the man be rightly said. His man as man was intended to be. Um, And by the way, those words in Latin, in your books, make a correction. I said that in in, uh, Greek, the words are eke homo. I I don't know where that came from. I should have known better. Eke homo is not Greek, it's Latin. (laughs) But the words behold the man in Latin are eke homo. I don't know how to pronounce Latin, but I hope that's the right pronunciation. Those words were used as a secret watchword for Christians in the early centuries when they were under heavy persecution. If they would meet another person and and wonder if maybe they were a Christian, maybe by their behavior or something, they might whisper to them, Ecce homo, and that means behold the man. And if the person responded, Ecce homo, they would know that that was a fellow Christian. It was a secret watchword. As was, remember, when they would draw the little sign of the fish, the ichthus, maybe in, on a piece of paper and the sand. I guess they, I don't know what they wrote on the sand. You know, they wrote the sign of the fish. It was like telling someone else, like you do on the back of your cards. You're telling other people what? That you're a Christian. Well, what was the outcome of uh, Pilate's plan here? What was the outcome? Did the sight of the beaten, bloody Jesus, dressed in the thorny crown and scarlet robe, did that pacify his persecutors? Did it? No, not at all. Instead of being satisfied, um, instead of being pacified, they were even more incensed. In verse 6, we learn that when the chief priests and the officers who did the priest's bidding, when they saw Jesus in that scourged mocking condition they were outraged and they cried out and in the greek it's loud very loud cry out what did they cry out crucify crucify and the reason i say crucify crucify is because if you'll notice the little pronoun him is in italics so it's not in the original they just shouted out crucify crucify And that makes it even more severe. They wanted blood. They wanted Jesus dead. And nothing short of that was going to pacify them, satisfy them. Now, of course, the chief priests were the main source of this cruel, bloodthirsty, unfeeling, loud demand. They were the culprits behind all of this. Um, Instead, Pilate's plan to arouse sympathy for his victim failed miserably miserably i'm sure it shocked him how bad it failed instead of the crowd having pity on the victim instead of the priests softening on their envy of him and their hatred of him they all joined their voices together and in an even more determined aggression nothing short of jesus's death by crucifixion was going to satisfy them they were like beasts of prey Plus, they were furious. They were furious that Jesus had brought such Roman scorn and ridicule upon their Jewish messianic expectations, aspirations. The sight of the mocked Messiah King inflamed their rage because it was like, you know, Rome was making fun of their, their, this is your Messiah, this is the King of the Jews, and that just inflamed their rage even more. Pilate was very, very likely surprised and shocked and deeply disappointed when he realized that his ploy for sympathy did not work with these heartless people. I'm sure he looked at the crowd and thought, how can they be so 
unsympathetic unsymp- and so mean and, and just downright ugly and, and vicious. But then shouldn't he have had a long look in the mirror? Hadn't he just given the halfway death to a man he, com- he repeatedly declared was innocent? You know, always looking at the, the, what is it, the log in somebody else's eye when there's a beam in your own? So there's no way he could really complain about the lack of compassion or sympathy when he was the one who had subjected Jesus to this atrocious, to the atrocious Roman scourging. Yet Pilate still struggled to resist the persistence of his Jewish subjects. He was angry with the response of the crowd. So with a combination of determination and sarcasm, he told them, in effect, okay, you want him dead so badly, then go ahead and take him yourself and do what? And crucify him. Crucify him yourself. Verse 6. He, he really, you can see this as you read through these trials, uh, the Roman trials. He really, really wanted to be done with this whole sticky mess, didn't he? He just wanted to be, get, get it over with. Um, but, of course, he had created this dilemma for himself in the first place by not doing what was right from the very beginning. He should have done what, what his words say here, too. He should have released Jesus to the crowd. Okay, I'm not going to bloody my hands with the death of an innocent man. I've already gone too far in scourging an innocent man. So you take him. You crucify him. He should have done that right here and then. I don't know what would have happened to Jesus. They would have stoned him to death, and that wouldn't have fulfilled prophecy, so we know none of this would have happened. But Pilate was being sarcastic in this statement because he knew that it was something the Jews could not do legally. They could not take Jesus and crucify him. Roman law would not allow her subjected peoples to execute a death death sentence. And remember, they had used that law for their own purposes earlier, back in John 18, 31, when they had responded to Pilate's uh, earlier declaration, his first loophole plan, when he said, you know, what's the accusation against him? And they said he's a malefactor. And he said, well, uh, you take him and judge him according to your own laws. First of all, he said, take him and judge him according to your laws. Now he's saying, take him and crucify him. He's just trying to get out of this. But what had they responded back then? They had said, it's not lawful for us to put any man to death. Now, they didn't care about that law because they did at times put people to death. They stoned Stephen to death, didn't they? They would have stoned that adulterous woman. They tried to stone Jesus. So they didn't care about the law that the Romans wouldn't let them put people to death. But they wanted Rome to kill Jesus. Why? Because they wanted the curse of crucifixion to be on him forever. In the, in the Old Testament, it said, Cursed is every man that hangs from a tree. So they wanted to be able to tell people forever, Jesus of Nazareth cannot be our Messiah because God himself said, Cursed is every man that hangs on a tree. Not only did Roman law technically prevent them from executing the death sentence, But even under Mosaic law, a condemned person would be, what, stoned to death, not crucified. So if they really cared about their own laws, what would they be saying here? Instead of crucify, crucify, they'd be saying stone, stone. What Pilate did in a backhanded way was to remind the bloodthirsty crowd that they did not have the power to crucify Jesus themselves. He was getting back at them for rejecting his scourging plan of appeasement. And he's getting back at them for embarrassing him with all his repeated failures to release a man he declared to be not guilty. That's got to be embarrassing for a judge 
to keep saying he's not guilty, not guilty, and yet he keeps doing more and more to the not guilty man because of the crowd who's really manipulating him. So he's embarrassed. The Jews were asking him to break the law, Roman law, by committing a judicial murder. You know, because for a a judge, Roman or any other kind of judge, for a judge to purposely kill an innocent man is judicial murder. So that's what they're asking him to do, commit judicial murder. So now he was challenging them to break the law, Roman law, and go ahead and crucify Jesus yourselves. They had embarrassed him, and now he wanted to embarrass them by reminding them of their their oppression under Rome. <coughs> because they knew they, you know, weren't allowed to crucify um, Jesus. They so they continued to argue and, and rebel against um, the findings of his court. So what he's doing here is mocking them about the impotence of their court. All it is is just a lot of political games going back and forth, isn't it? Has anything changed <laughs> with the publicans and the prostitutes? <laughs> with the Republicans and, and the Democrats? I mean, we had the whole, the whole thing going on all the time. And I'm not saying that the, the Democrats are prostitutes. Bleep that out, because that's what it might sound like on the tape. Um, but there is, you know, all these political games that go on in Washington. And we, it, it, there is nothing new under the sun. But here we see the same thing was happening. It was just getting nastier and nastier. Well, it's at this point that we are informed by Matthew and Mark that Pilate asked the shouting crowd this question. Why? You know, they're saying crucify him. And so he says, why? What evil hath he done? What's the evil that he has done? Actually, Luke tells us that he had asked that question even before the scourging. So he asked that question twice, before and after the scourging. What evil has he done? (coughs) Remember, the very first accusation that they had brought against Jesus when they took him to Pilate was that he was a male factor. What was that? A person who continuously does evil, an evildoer. Uh, But now, when they're asked, what evil has he done? You know, what specific evil has he done? The only thing that they could come up with was that he had made himself to be the son of God. So in John 19, 7, they finally come full circle to the real stated reason that they want Jesus dead. Why do they want Jesus dead? Because he claimed deity. He claimed to be the son of God, and they understood that that meant equality with God, Jehovah God. The unstated reason they wanted him dead was their envy. They envied him and his popularity with the people. They envied his power. But they didn't mention this to Pilate at first, did they? When they first brought Jesus to Pilate, did they say he declares to be the son of God? They didn't mention that at all because they figured a Gentile pagan would not care about the honor of their God. Pilate wouldn't have cared that their God had been blasphemed. And Pilate wouldn't care about their religious disputes regarding a uh, Jewish messiah. But now, you see, having failed in all of their other accusations that they brought up, you know, he's a rival to Caesar, he's stirring up the people from Galilee on, etc., etc., all those accusations had failed, and so now they present to Jesus the heart of the whole issue. We have a law, they say, and by our law he ought to die. 
because he hath made himself the Son of God. Technically, even that isn't a true accusation, is it? Why? Did Jesus make himself the Son of God, or is he the Son of God? He is the Son of God. But they were saying to Pilate, since you refer this whole matter back to us, you know, when you say take him, crucify him yourself, we must remind you that we have religious laws. And one of those laws states that anyone who makes himself out to be equal with our God must be put to death because that's blasphemy. And they're referring to Leviticus 24, 16. But again, isn't their hypocrisy evident? How is that? Well, aren't they appealing to their own law? But the truth is that they have no real respect for their law, proven by the fact, as I mentioned earlier, that if they really cared about God's laws, they would want him to be stoned to death because that's what their law says. If you commit blasphemy against law, you should be stoned to death, not crucified. If they were really concerned with pleasing God by obeying his law, they would be striving for Jesus to be stoned. What they're really doing here is getting back at Pilate. Again, the political game is going back and forth. He had just dared them to break Roman law, political law, Roman civil law, by crucifying Jesus themselves. So they are now daring him to break their religious law. You see? (laughs) How silly the whole thing is. But they knew that he was afraid to do that. He was afraid to break their religious laws or step on any of their traditions, you know, step on their toes by breaking their traditions or their taboos. Why? Because in the past five or six years of ruling over these stubborn people, he has learned what they can do when they're offended, when their laws get broken or their traditions. They run to Caesar and tattletale, don't they? So he didn't dare break one. He's he's on walking on eggshells with Caesar right now. By the way, do you know what you get if if you mix a um, the head of the Roman Empire with a head of lettuce, a Caesar salad. Very good. You've been watching Veggie Tales too. <laughs> I was watching Veggie. You know what Veggie Tales are? I'm learning. <laughs> I can't believe that you can learn about the Bible from a tomato and a cucumber. And a head of lettuce, talking, I mean, but they're actually good. I was crying. (laughs) The little drummer boy. Anyway. Um, (laughs) uh, So they're saying, go ahead, Pilate, break our religious, just break one of our religious laws again and see what happens to you with your precarious little position with Caesar. Well, the reaction of Pilate when he heard that Jesus had claimed to be the son of God was not what the Jews expected. Not at all what they expected. Likely, likely they had expected him to mock their laws or to mock their God or maybe even to just give in and go ahead and crucify Jesus and be done with this whole thing uh, since this was so very important to them. They did not anticipate that he would be made the more afraid to kill Jesus. And they, didn't, they, they really didn't put themselves in a better position with this one, did they? Now he's even, and when we hear the more afraid, what does that tell us? That he's already been afraid, now he's just the more afraid. He had dismissed their accusation about Jesus' royal rivalry with Caesar. You know, he had dismissed the king thing. Eh, he's no, he's no real threat. But this God thing, this was a different issue. 
It scared him. Now, we have to realize, of course, that the expression, the son of God, meant much more to the Jewish mind than it did to the Gentile mind, and that it even does to many minds of people today. A lot of people, even in churches, don't really understand the term, the son of God. They just think, well, he's a man who is the son of God, like we're sons of God. They don't understand that to be the son of God is to be equal with God. The Jews understood that. They understood when Jesus called God his father that he was claiming to be of the same nature as his father. They understood that. But, <clears throat> but uh, Pilate, you know, he, he didn't understand anything about the strict monotheism of the Jews. He didn't understand anything about the Old Testament scriptures. His fear was based on his knowledge of mythological legends of the Greeks and the Romans regarding sons of gods who in the days of old often walked the earth making themselves indistinguishable from common men. And uh, some of the greatest Greek dramas are about humans who unknowingly committed crimes against gods or goddesses who were in human likeness. And therefore, the, they evoked the vengeance of Zeus down upon them. If you know anything about Greek and Roman theology, you know that, that there's many legends about that. So that's where, you know, Pilate's mind frame is, is on mythology and superstition. What if Jesus was the son of the Hebrew god, Jehovah, as Castor and Pollux were the uh, sons of Jupiter? What if? Would he be in trouble? Hmm. Well, again, we find that God was in sovereign control of everything. We just keep going back to that because he is. He was in, every, in control of everything then. He's in control of everything today. And we see this even in the squabbling dialogue that we have between Pilate and the religious rulers of Israel. Pilate had said of Jesus, behold the man. And the Jews now take that step, uh, statement a step higher when they say, well, he's claimed to be the son of God. And although the unjust, self-centered Pilate certainly did not intend to imply that Jesus was the ideal man. And even though the Jews, you know, the envious, evil religious rulers, certainly did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, yet God in heaven used the evil motives of both parties, Pilate and the religious rulers, to testify to the truth that Jesus is the perfect man. And who else is he? his son, the son of God. Well, anyhow, this new accusation definitely caused Pilate to, to feel even more fearfully uncomfortable than he was before. The thought that the meek and uniquely cool, calm, and collected Jesus might be some superior being filled his already troubled conscience with serious alarm. He had already Remember back in Matthew 27:14 he had already been very impressed with the dignity and the majesty of of Jesus and his countenance and his authoritative speech. It told us that he marveled greatly at him. He was very impressed with Jesus. And then you throw on top of that Claudia's dream, his wife's dream, and he is really spooked right now. What if it turned out that he had just inflicted great bodily harm on one of the gods 
What kind of trouble would he be in for having allowed his own soldiers to mock one of the gods? Hadn't Jesus told him that that his kingdom was not of this world? John 18:36. You know, Pilate was definitely the more afraid. More tells us he was already afraid, but this time his fear was not of the Jews. His fear was not of the mob. His fear was not even of Caesar. What was his fear this time? His fear this time was, you know, that he might suffer suffer the wrath of the gods, or at least the God of, of, of Israel. Little did Pilate know, <laughs> he would never have known this in a million years, but he, he had more reason to fear than he could ever imagine. Standing before him, unjustly scourged and ridiculed by both his command and his permission, was not merely some puny Greek god of mythology or Roman mythology, you know, which are just the product of of human corrupt imagination. But standing before him was the one and only true God of the universe, manifested in flesh. His His fear was not unjustified. The truth of the matter is that his fear was not great enough. So for the third time, Pilate goes back into the praetorium. Remember, the first time he went back into the praetorium was to question Jesus about his kingship. The second time they went back into the praetorium was when he had Jesus scourged. And now this third time he goes back in is to ask Jesus about his deity. And so he needs to interrogate him about this fresh charge of blasphemy. He could care less about blasphemy of the Jewish God, but what he's concerned about is his deity status. So he asks him in verse 9, Whence art thou? Which has nothing to do with his earthly home. He's not saying, Where are you from? Because remember, he's already found out that he's from Galilee. He wouldn't know anything about the significance of the Bethlehem birth, but he knows he's from Galilee. He's not asking about his origin from earth, he's wanting to know, are you really from somewhere beyond this earth? He's seeking to find out if what the Jews said was true. Did he really make himself out to be the son of their God? Was he? Was he the son of their God? You know, obviously, Pilate had heard about the miraculous powers of Jesus by this time. He had probably heard that he even had raised the dead, that he could feed multitudes of people, that he could heal the sick and give sight to the blind. Uh, and if it was true that he was some kind of a god, he didn't want to be involved in any more mistreatment of him. He's already, you know, in enough trouble with what he's done. Now, what we find next is very interesting, especially in light of the fact that the last time Pilate <coughs> questioned Jesus, which was over in chapter 18, verses 33 to 38, the Lord had spoken freely to him. You know, Pilate would ask a question, Jesus would respond, and Jesus had told Pilate of the nature of his kingdom. And uh, the purpose that he had come into the world, which right there, you know, if Pilate had really been listening, (laughs) didn't that tell him that he was from another world? He was otherworldly. He said, my kingdom is not from, you know, of this world. In other words, I'm a king of a kingdom of another world. So he's already answered his question. And he told him his purpose for coming into the world, coming into the world tells him that he was from another world too, right? I came into this world. What was the purpose? to witness of the truth, to tell men of the truth. There again is basically another claim to deity. In effect, we could say that Jesus had already answered Pilate's question about his origin and his deity. Yet with all that revealed light, 
enlightenment, and with all that knowledge, Pilate had scorned even the concept of truth with his cynical question, what is truth? And he hadn't waited, you know, he didn't have enough interest to seek the answer to that question because he just abruptly turned on his heels and left to go out to the crowd to tell them that he found Jesus innocent. And yet, then what did he do after that? He proceeded to have him scourged. Pilate had sinned away his opportunities to have more light, more truth, more, you know, enlightenment. He had turned a deaf ear to the shouts of his own conscience. And so, what did he get? Same thing as Herod. Ominous silence. Jesus gave him no answer. He had nothing more to say to enlighten Pilate about truth. And when Jesus stops speaking to a person, that person is in serious trouble. Remember the last words he had said to Pilate before this? The very last words. He was like giving him a warning. John 18, 37. After, you know, he had said, I came into the world to witness unto the truth, he said, everyone that is of the truth does what? Heareth my voice. Pilate, are you hearing me? Did Pilate hear? He didn't even stay around to hear. Ask the truth. Truth personified. What is truth? But he didn't stay around to hear the answer. So now... Jesus' mouth is closed. And that's a principle of scripture. You know, there, there is such a thing as a day of visitation. There is such a thing as a day of grace when God, the Lord speaks to men. But if they will not hear his voice and open the door of their hearts, you know, he gives them opportunity after opportunity, but they won't open the door to their hearts, what will he eventually do? He'll leave them alone. God will not force himself on obstinate unbelievers. He will not force men to believe in him. He will not always strive with men's consciences. He will give them over sooner or later, and you never know when that time might be, but he will give them over to a reprobate mind and leave them to reap the fruit of their own sins. Pilate had his opportunity. God even sent his wife a dream to warn him. But Pilate did not choose to use his opportunity. And so he wound up like Herod, didn't he? Now, I don't know if later on in his life he had a second chance or not, but I know right here Jesus didn't answer him. Um, And in saying all this, I do again need to remind ourselves that God's still overruling everything. Both Pilate's stubborn refusal to listen to his own conscience and Christ's refusal here to speak to Pilate. What do you think, sometimes we need to ask ourselves as we're studying scripture, what if, what if, what if this had happened instead of this? What do you think would have happened if the Lord here had told Pilate, yes, I am the son of Jehovah God? What do you think would have happened? Do you think that Pilate would have sent him to the cross? No, he would have been too scared to do that. Not for the right reasons, but he still wouldn't have done it. And therefore, the great sacrifice for the world's sins would never have been offered up on the cross. You see, Jesus' silence was just. It was justified because Pilate didn't deserve an answer. However, it was also part of God's plan for man's salvation, wasn't it? 
Besides, Pilate's question really wasn't offered in genuine humility and sincerity with the real desire of the heart to know the truth of Jesus' origin. If Jesus had told him, yes, I'm the son of Jehovah God, he still wouldn't have believed he was the son of the one and only God of the universe. He probably wouldn't have kept asking questions to know more and more truth. And we know this, first of all, because of Jesus' silence. Jesus always, always answers the sincere seeker of truth. But here he's silent. We know this also because of Pilate's irritated and arrogant response, his arrogant response to Jesus' silence. He says, Speakest thou not unto me? Knowest not thou not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? Does that sound like a humble man seeking to know if his prisoner is a god? Would you talk to someone like that if you really thought they were a god? No, nope, nope. Uh, this is the haughty, arrogant temper of the Roman governor coming out. In effect, he's saying, why don't you answer me? Don't you know that you are offending me by not responding to my question? Don't you realize that you are at I'm the one who has the power here. I'm the one who has the authority to either crucify you or release you. Oh, you do have that kind of authority? If you do, then why haven't you released him? Because you keep saying he's innocent. He didn't have... I mean, this is just a magnification of himself that is an empty claim. Totally empty. If he had such almighty power and authority over his prisoner and the whole situation, why hadn't he released him at this point? He, was, he had declared him innocent at least three times. Maybe four. I've lost count. But the reason he hasn't released his prisoner is because the real prisoner here is Pilate himself. He's a prisoner to his fear of both men and Caesar, the Jews and Caesar, and now the gods. And fear and anger often work together. When men are afraid, they often put up a front and pretend to be powerful and brave. And there's also this truth to consider. Why should he boast of power and authority to crucify an innocent man when to do so would clearly be contrary to Roman justice? Did Caesar in, in Rome give him the authority and power to, to kill an innocent man? No, no. I said before it would be judicial murder. No Roman political figure had the authority to do that which is wrong. They had a good justice system, really. But here he's essentially saying, well, even though Rome wouldn't give me the authority to kill an innocent man, I'm above the law, whether innocent or not. I can do with you, Jesus, as I please. Isn't that arrogant? One of my commentators, Pastor John Butler, wrote this. He said, Pilate was nothing but a pimple of power. They love that. You squeeze him. Don't you love to squeeze a pimple? <laughs> Isn't it ironic that Pilate can act like he is offended that Jesus didn't speak to him? Speakest thou not unto me? Like, you know, how can you be so disrespectful to me, the one who holds your life in my hands? And like, how can you be so ungrateful to me that you stand there not answering me? I'm the one who's been laboring so hard to try to get you released. Do you see how hypocritical that is? 
for Pilate to be upset? He's the one who's upset here. Isn't it the case that Jesus is the one who has every right to be upset? He's innocent, and yet Pilate has had him brutalized with that halfway death scourging and mocked, allowed him to be mocked. He's innocent, but while, you know, Pilate stood by while his men put that crown of thorns on his head, dressed him up in purple, and, and just made fun of him. And yet Pilate is acting like he's the one who's offended? And Jesus is standing there before him with that wreath of, of thorns pressed painfully on his brow, blood dripping down. He's covered in blood. He's covered in sweat and spit with his back sliced open, probably even organs exposed, and his countenance and his form, as we read in Isaiah, not even appearing to be human. And Pilate doesn't do anything to help relieve him of his pain and his agony. Don't you think if Pilate really thought he could be a god, that he might say, oh, here, have a chair. Sit down. Uh, Let me get you, do you want a glass of water? Would you like some vinegar to help with the pain? Don't you think he would have done something? But he doesn't. But Pilate is the one who's angry with Jesus. I mean, just go figure. It makes no sense, does it? But isn't that so typical of mankind in general? When when something comes into our lives and we don't understand it and we're troubled and, and we pray and we don't get it, we don't feel like we get an answer, who do we get angry with? God, speakest thou not unto me? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know I have the power to not believe in you? <laughs> How ridiculous. Now, it would have been so easy for the Lord Jesus to have silenced forever the tongue of this man who had boasted of his power over the very Son of God. Jesus could have done any one of, uh, you know, a million miracles. He could have paralyzed his tongue. He could have paralyzed him. He could have had him drop dead, whatever, uh, to demonstrate who had the real power and the authority over this whole situation. But what was Jesus doing? He was submitting to the will of his Father, which was to die for the sins of the world. If Pilate's insult here had been against Jesus personally, he wouldn't have responded. He likely would have just stayed silent. But Pilate's words insulted his heavenly father, the sovereignty of his father. And therefore, Pilate needed to be rebuked here. He was, Pilate was saying, I'm the one with authority over you. That's putting himself above God, right? And if Jesus had remained silent, you and I might think he was agreeing with him. Okay, you do have the authority over me. So, Jesus needed to open his mouth right near here. He needed to rebuke Pilate and speak the truth. Um, and if he had been a mere man, you know, this would have been the time to stroke the governor's ego, wouldn't it? He could have said, okay, you do have authority over me. Would you please, please release me? You know I'm innocent. If he had been a mere man, he could have said that and probably been released. But showing absolutely no fear of his judge, the one who says he has a power to crucify. Jesus does what he always does. He spoke the truth. He had no fear at all when he essentially told Jesus um, that he could do zero if he didn't have permission from one above. He said, thou couldst have no power at all against me, except it were given thee from above. You know, this is the Lord's last official testimony before he picks up his cross and, and goes to Calvary. So, yes, and, and it was about a testimony of his father's sovereignty. 
So yes, Pilate had power, but not the way he thought he had power. His power was not given to him by Caesar, by Rome. Pilate's power was from a completely different source and under a whole different set of circumstances and restrictions than he ever could have imagined. He had deceived himself into thinking that he had almost sovereign will to do as he pleased, which is a joke in itself because he wasn't doing anything he wanted. He was being manipulated by the Jews. But uh, he deceived himself into thinking he could release or he could crucify Jesus. The choice was his to make, he boasted. But the Lord corrected him. The only reason he had any power at all to do something against Jesus was because that power was given to him from above. Doesn't it remind you of Romans 13.1? There is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. And then the Lord went on to say, Therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. Isn't it interesting? Pilate is the supposed judge here, right? From man's perspective, who's the judge? Pilate. Pilate's supposed to be the judge. And he has already declared Jesus to be innocent, I think, some four times now. But who is the real judge? The real judge is Jesus, and he here condemns Pilate. Pilate keeps saying Jesus is innocent. Here, Jesus says, you're guilty of what? Sin. Great sin. Pilate had great sin, but he, you know, it's just not the greatest. <laughs> he says, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin, which implies that Pilate had great sin, it just wasn't the greatest. And something else his words tell us, I mean, they tell us one thing, that there are degrees of sin. Great, greater, and greatest. All sin is great in God's eyes. But there are degrees of sin. Something else he tells us here is that even though God sovereignly prevailed over everything that was happening, yet this did not abolish the guilt of those who were involved in sending Christ to the cross. Right? I mean, even though Pilate is being, a, he's, a, he's a dupe of Satan, Satan is using him as his instrument, and, and God is sovereignly orchestrating all of that to even happen, yet does that mean that Pilate isn't responsible for his own sin? Just like we saw with Judas? No. Every man is responsible for his own sin, making his own choices. <clears throat> and he's saying here also another thing. The Jews had the greater blame in the death of Christ. But the, the Gentiles were also responsible. Pilate was also to blame, as was Herod. <clears throat> he had sinned in his unjust treatment of Jesus, but he did it unwillingly, and he did it from cowardice. It was still a sin, but the Jews did so from greater sins. They did so from willful hatred and rejection and unbelief and from envy. Pilate was an instrument of the Jews. You see, the superior knowledge of the Jewish people and especially their leaders regarding the law and regarding the Old Testament scriptures and regarding messianic prophecies and regarding their knowledge of, of the true God, Jehovah God. They didn't believe in the Roman gods and goddesses and the Greek gods and goddesses. All those things made their sin greater than Pilate's sin. The more enlightenment we have, we have Bibles on our laps, right? We're more responsible for the truth than some person in 
uh, Timbuktu who doesn't own a copy of the scripture. Timbuktu. I don't know why people always say Timbuktu. <laughs> but uh, there's so, the Jewish, the Jews' sin was greater than Pilate's sin. He was an ignorant heathen. <clears throat> the Jews as a people represented by their leaders committed a greater sin than the Gentiles involved. Now they were all responsible. The whole world is responsible for the death of Jesus because every one of us has inherited the sin nature um, and we're, and we're um, all sinners by choice as well. <clears throat> but <clears throat> the most responsible would be the Jewish people. And I'm saying that not being anti-Semitic at all, because I love the Jewish people. Jesus was Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. The Bible was given to us mostly by the Jewish people. One day they will believe. But I'm just saying what Jesus says. They are more responsible for his death because they had more truth. They had more enlightenment. But he does use a specific pronoun here, doesn't he? He narrows it down to one man in particular. He said, he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. The one man of all the Jews who was held the most accountable and most responsible for the death of Jesus was who? Caiaphas. Why? Because of his position as high priest of Israel. And long ago, even before the betrayal by Judas and before any of the six trials, Caiaphas had predetermined to eliminate Jesus, hadn't he? Unlike Pilate, Caiaphas had every opportunity to examine the scripture and compare scriptures to Jesus's credentials and to his words and his works to see if he really was who he claimed to be. But Caiaphas willfully shut his eyes to the truth and hardened his heart to Jesus. He made certain that Jesus was not given a fair trial, and it was men under his influence who were at that very time inciting the mob outside the judgment hall to shout for Jesus' crucifixion. So if Pilate's abuse of his political office was great, how much worse was Caiaphas's abuse of his holy office. You see, Pilate's sin was a sin of weakness. Caiaphas's sin was a sin of wickedness. Well, we're out of time. We're way over time. But I wonder if you notice that the last word Jesus said before he went to Calvary was sin. Isn't that appropriate? Look at verse 11, therefore he that delivered me unto thee hath the greater sin. That's his last word before he picks up that crossbeam and begins his walk down the Via della Rosa. And isn't it appropriate that it was sin? Because why did he go to the cross? Because of my sin and because of your sin. Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for your word and for your son that he was willing to become sin for us. We love him, and we want to serve him with the rest of our days. Enable us to do that. For we pray in your name. Amen. I'm